Sometimes, church, you just got to shout it out. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you just got to proclaim truth. It's, I'm tired of, of, of the devil thinking he won. He's been defeated, so let's stop giving him any more room. Amen? Yeah. All right. That being said, anybody ready for another adventure in the Bible? Grab your Bibles. We're going to just seek out another adventure in God's Word. Thanks for the woo, Josh. You're the only one that was excited about it. Appreciate that. In the late, uh, early 1990s or late 1990s, or maybe it was the mid-1990s, everything gets a little foggy every now and then, there was a group of uh, young explorers, and they headed off to uh, Mount St. Helens. And the reason they went to Mount St. Helens was they were out to prove with a sort of a seasoned explorer that evolution is a theory and is false, and that creation is true. So off they go to Mount St. Helens to see if a massive worldwide catastrophe, such as maybe a flood that took place, could change the earth. If a more smaller, say, catastrophe took place and changed the surrounding place of the earth. So comparing the two, what would they discover? So off to Mount St. Helens they went. And as they got to Mount St. Helens, they did the typical exploring, but then they went to a place called Tuttle River, which was a small creek bed that was located just below Mount St. Helens. And it was just a small creek bed prior to the eruption of the volcano in 1980. However, 1980, when Mount St. Helens erupted, mud, which came from the snow, which came from the melting from the lava, and all the rock that slid down the side of Mount St. Helens went into Tuttle River, and it basically engulfed it and created a canyon one-eighth the size of the Grand Canyon in a matter of hours, not years. You see, some of us have been told, like, for instance, the Grand Canyon took millions and billions of years to be created. However, could a massive worldwide catastrophe cause the Grand Canyon to be created in maybe hours or days, such as we learned on a smaller fraction level from Mount St. Helens and Tuttle River. Well, I'll tell you, I was a part of that trip, and the evidence I saw was astounding. And when I look at that, I am reminded of this next adventure, Genesis chapter 6, turn there, please, as we look at the life of Noah. Incredible adventure in the Bibles. They are there not just for mere entertainment or for history, but as I said last week, it's the uncovering of who God is and God's plan. God is a God of love, and he has a plan to rescue us from an evil adversary that wants to take us out. We discover that God's always the main character in all these stories. So again, I say Genesis 6, 6 I say the ark, and your first thought is Noah. But God's going to be the main character, even though we're going to talk about Noah. So in Genesis 6, we do have the story of Noah's ark. And uh, listen, if you've never stepped into a church... You've never opened a Bible. You've probably still heard this story. Somehow it's popped up as a kid's story time. Uh, maybe the, the, your kids had a bathtub toy ark with all the animals. Maybe one of your kids or somebody else. It just seems that this story is out there for everybody. Hollywood even released the movie Noah, hoping that we would gain some understanding about the story. Uh, but if you're like me, you watch maybe 15, 20 minutes of it and then realize this is so far off from God's word. Why am I watching this? All it's going to do is just twist and taint God's word. So 
I, I confess, never watched the whole movie. Um, I don't like what Hollywood does to God's word. But we see the stories of the ark always out there, kids' stories, other movies um, portrayed. So when we dig into this adventure today, I'm going to pull out some things that you've already heard, okay? But then I'm going to pull out something at the very end that was new to me. And again, it's not going to be about Noah, it's going to be about God. So I'm giving you a direction where we're going. So let's go with what we do know. The Bible, Genesis chapter 5 through 9, actually contains the story of Noah, his family, and the account of the uh, worldwide flood. He was married. He had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Each of his sons had a wife. In the years of Noah, uh, spent building the ark. His grandfather, Methuselah, and father Lamech, uh, may have been, were around, and they may have assisted him in some ways of building as well. We don't know. There's a lot of detail in life compared to other main biblical people as we read through the Bible, but we don't have a great amount about Noah. Beyond Noah's family, we have the rest of the people on the earth, the descendants of Adam and Eve. And if you look in your Bibles at verse 5 with me, chapter 6, we read this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. We have a setting going on here from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 that we looked at those adventures last week. Now we move forward in time, thousand plus years later, and God looks at earth and all he sees is consistent and total evil. And you wonder what's going on in the thought process with God. Well, we find out he basically has this thought. It's time to hit the reset button. We're going to wipe this all out. Control-Alt-Delete, for those of you who remember the old computer days, if you didn't know what to do with your computer screen, right? Or you unplug it. Well, God's going to hit the reset button. But in doing so, he's like, I've got a plan on how I'm going to do this reset. So he chose a family, Noah's family, and you'll learn more why in a little bit. And he gives Noah this task. You're going to build an ark. He gives him the task. He gives him the building material. He gives him the dimensions and the sizes. And he basically says, go at it. You are going to build this ark. And it is not the bathtub toy that some of you have seen, okay? It is more like a cargo ship is what he built if you look at it. If you've been to the ark encounter in Kentucky, you have an exact, almost exact replica of what the ark, we believe, looked like. And again, it didn't look so much like a kid's toy. But then, you know, obviously, as we talk about this adventure, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind, or at least to your kid's mind? Somebody told me uh, after first service, they said, we're going to the zoo today. This is so fun after we heard this, you know, last week's creation, this week, Noah, and Zark, and the what? Animals, right? Animals always come to mind. And they're always popping their heads out of like 20 different windows. They're all happy, Right? And it's like, okay, I don't think that's the way it was. Matter of fact, we know there were no windows. There was an 18-inch space around the top, one door. That's it. But this is how we always picture it, right? And the animals, they were just, it was a party. It was a party ship, right? Yeah, they were having a good time. God brought the animals to Noah. Noah had the task of what? Collecting the rations, the food for the animals, providing for them, and making sure they're all set. But let's read on. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. God said this, Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you and keep them alive during the flood. 
pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come up to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. Now, there's a lot of critics out there. They'll look at this story and they'll say, like, really, how did this all happen? Come on. I mean, all the animals, all the animals fit on there. Dinosaurs too, right? And, and what about the food? Where do they store all that? How do they do all that? Well, let's keep in mind the key to answering that charge against Noah is that it was two of every kind. Kind meaning understanding that today's modern classification system was the family. Noah is also instructed to bring seven or seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. Those were going to be sacrificed when they got off the ark. Now, when you take into account then the animals and the classifications, and I've looked and studied some of this, and the number of animals just seems ridiculous. But let's remember, the ark was huge. The ark was huge. There was plenty of room. Matter of fact, we read in Genesis 6.15, we get an idea how big the ark was. God told Noah, make the boat 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half, right? 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat so all the animals can stick their heads out and say cheese and have their picture taken and put on in front of a book. Added translation. Put on the door on the side and three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Now, how big is that ark? Again, if you've been to the Ark Encounter, you've seen it. If you haven't, let me help you out. You live in Fulton County for the most part. Most of you in here live in Fulton County. We have a railroad crossing that many of you sometimes have to sit at, right? And you sit there and you wait for trains. When you're a kid, it's fun, right? You're like, one, two, three, four, and they count. As a parent, you're like, hurry up. What am I, you know, we're impatient. There's a big difference, right? Do me a favor. Next time you're stopped by a train, just count how many, how many uh, railroad cars go by. Okay. Now, if you get to 50 or 60, that's a big train, right? You're like, whoa, I got to 60. Okay. 570-ish boxcars, railroad boxcars could fit on the ark. 570 plus. Does that help you understand how big this ark was, how gigantic it was, how it was able to fit the animals that were on there? Now we know, we actually don't know where it was built because what? The earth was destroyed, but we know where it landed. It says in uh, Genesis 8-4 that exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So we have a location where it ended up. Finally, there's a question of where these, of when these things took place. So how do we do that? When you look in the Bible, do you ever get to the, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you're like, and so-and-so, all right, I'm just going to go to the next chapter. And we don't read the names. Are you guilty of that too? Okay. So if you would really study the genealogies and add up the years, what we discover is that the flood was close to 4,400 years ago, about 1,650 years after creation. We believe the earth is a young earth, around 6,000 plus years old, not millions and billions of years old like you've been fed from textbooks that are incorrect. Did I just say that out loud? I did. Okay, good. Just want to make sure I said that out loud. See, Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. I'm like, 600 years old? That's a lot of social security, right? Yeah, that dude is old, right? We know that as time moved on after the flood, people did not live those lifespans anymore. A lot changed after the flood. From Scripture, we know the starting of the date. Genesis 7, 11 says, When Noah was 600 years old, 
on the seventh day of the second month, mark it on your calendar, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. Water came in both directions. So we know when they also left the, earth, the ark as well. The end of the flood in Genesis 8, 13 to 15 says, Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the flood waters had almost dried up the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry. Then God said, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and your wives. So now we know that they were on the ark for a little over a year. Again, when you study genealogies and you look through Scripture, you can figure out timelines and understanding the span and the ages of these things. So we know all these things. But there are then the unknowns. Does anybody know Noah's wife's name? No. How about Shem, Ham, or Japheth's wives? Anybody know their names? No. Again, genealogies often leave out women uh, in, the, in the account. It was a thing of ancient history. That's what they did. All we know her as Mrs. Noah, right? And all, what else do we know? Uh, or what we don't know? Like uh, the rain. Now it says the rain came up from the bottom of the earth and came down. How long did it take uh, for that to start? Was it immediate? Where did it come from? You consider maybe the logistics, the size of the ark, and the details, and everything we've been talking about. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, it seems sort of unbelievable. Right? It seems like for me to look at this, I need some kind of evidence. If you could give me some physical evidence, I'm all in. Have we done that all the way through the Bible with every single story? I want evidence that that blind man could see. I want evidence that he was actually blind. No, we just believe that Jesus healed a blind man. But when it comes to a story like this, well, if we could have some evidence. Although uh, the ark was spotted in Turkey on Mount Ararat years ago uh, on a couple planes, and then some expeditions went out, and they thought they found more evidence and so forth and so on. If you were to go back and every um, basically um, tribe or nation you follow back their history, everyone tends to talk about a worldwide flood that took place thousands of years ago. So if you're really searching and seeking, you could probably find evidence that will back this up. But the question is to the Christian and to anybody, as a matter of faith and fact of God's word being true, do I really need that hardcore evidence in front of me to believe this? No. That's my faith. God has given us evidence. He has shown us things. But it isn't like, well, because I can see the evidence, now it's true. Let's remember this. It is true. Now you get to choose to believe. And that's the story of Noah's Ark. Now, last week I pointed out a few things. We said that God is Elohim. He is the supreme God. We said that God is Elameth, which God is a source of truth. He is truth. Now, in this story, even though we've talked all about Noah and some of the details... I want you to know who God is in the story. God is a God of grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Do any of us in this room deserve forgiveness? Do any of us in this room deserve eternity in heaven? The answer to that question is no. None of us deserve it. I'm sorry. I don't care how good you think you are, how good I think I am. I don't deserve eternal presence of God. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve his forgiveness. I don't. In Genesis chapter 3, 
When we started out, what did Satan do? He tried to uh, disrupt and twist creation. And then in Genesis 6, what do we find out? More evil. Again, he's trying to thwart and pervert everything that God has given us. And here's the thing. God is still doing it today. He did it in Genesis multiple times. And throughout history, we'll see it as we continue this adventure. But I want to let you know, he's not done. Satan is still out there trying to disrupt God's plans, to pervert goodness. He is wise. He is dangerous, just as he was at the time of the flood. That's why we're reminded in Romans, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, that this battle that we face is a spiritual battle. Not against flesh and we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against the principalities and spiritual forces of this world. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, go back to that scripture. And it says, The Lord observed the extent of the human weakness on the earth. He saw everything that they thought was imagined was consistently and totally evil. We are told things were not good. There's all this kind of hostility and evil. And God points it out. And God, though, being a God of grace, God could have said very simply, that's it, destroy it, wipe it completely clean, save no one, and restart. Or not even, not even make another earth. But God is the God of grace who wants to show forgiveness, who wants to show kindness. Jesus in the New Testament Different places, Matthew 7, 17, Luke eleven thirteen, talked about how man was evil. We're told no one was good, no, not one. A rich ruler came to Jesus and said, hey, good master. And Jesus like, you call me good? There's no one that's good except God. The gospel begins with the fact that there's a holy God there is sin in this world. We need a Savior to rescue us from the sin. And we need to place our faith in Him. That's the gospel message. And we see this time and time again as we go throughout Scripture. But none of us like to hear that, do we? Because we don't like to call ourselves bad. Matter of fact, we'll look at somebody else and we'll say, at least I'm not as bad as them. Right? I think we want to consider ourselves still to be good. But we, here's the point. Until we come to the truth and the repentance and we get on our knees and admit that we are bad, then you'll never understand the need for God's forgiveness and his grace. You'll never understand how great a God is that says, I want to give you something you don't deserve if you're already thinking you deserve everything. If in your mind you are good and I deserve heaven, then you'll never understand grace. When we finally figure out that we're not good and we don't deserve heaven, that's when you start to understand grace. And it changes you. Noah found grace. Look at verse 8. Genesis 6, 8 says, But Noah found favor. He found grace with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was what? A righteous man. The only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with the Lord. Now this isn't the first appearance of the idea of grace in the Bible. Obviously Adam and Eve found grace in the eyes of God. Otherwise they would have lived in darkness. Family line that followed afterwards, Seth, Enoch, and all those that followed, they experienced grace. But this is the first time where it's actually named, where we see grace called out and explicitly mentioned. And the awesome thing about this is that Noah didn't earn grace. 
It didn't say, and Noah earned the grace of God. It says, Noah what? Found the grace of God. God expressed his grace to Noah. Because he was then given the grace of God, then Noah, what? Lived righteous and blameless, as it says. He was a righteous man, a blameless man. It wasn't like this. Let's make sure we get scripture correct here, okay? It wasn't, and Noah was a righteous and blameless man who did a lot of good things. Therefore, he found favor with God. That makes it sound like we're going to work it out. For by grace are you saved, through faith, not of yourselves, not by works. Why? Otherwise, we'd boast about it, right? Here's how it goes. Noah found grace with God. Then he was righteous and blameless. We must understand we can't work our way to heaven. Grace is shown to us from God. This is important that we see this as you read through Scripture. You'll, you'll find it again, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 7, 8. I don't have the Scripture up there for you, but basically it says that God loved Israel, the nation of Israel. Not because they were numerous, not because they did good things, not because at one point in time they had Ten Commandments. God loved them, period. That's it. And maybe that doesn't make sense to you. Like, how can God love me? I didn't do anything to make him love me. Exactly. That's grace. That's the definition of grace, basically. It doesn't make sense. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. That is grace. God is a God of grace, is what we learn in this story. He shows it beginning here with Noah. He's a God of promises. He makes covenants. Um, the word covenant uh, appears for the first time in the Bible right here in the story. After this, it's found over a couple hundred times in the Old Testament, a couple dozen times in the New Testament. And basically, it talks about a covenant. And you ask, well, what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. Okay, It's basically God says, I'm making a promise to you, Noah. I'm going to make a promise and I'm going to keep it. And here's the thing. It's different for us today because we don't understand maybe a covenant, biblical covenant. Our covenants and contracts are like this. If anybody in here is going to buy a car or buy a house, you might sit down, especially with a house and the owner or the seller, and you might say, here's the terms of agreement. And you might say, well, but we want to keep the washer and dryer, so let's add that in. And the, the seller might say, okay, but here's what I'm going to do on the price. Okay, but then you need to make sure you do something on the roof. And they sort of go back and forth, and finally they have a contract, right? And then they both sign, and that's like a covenant, right? Here's the difference between a today's covenant and an ancient covenant. An ancient covenant that God made a covenant is basically like this. God's like, all right, here's what I need you to do. Here you go. That's it. Then you get to choose whether you're going to agree with God or not. It isn't one of those, well, God, I saw what you wrote down, and here's the deal. On Saturday nights, that's sort of my night. I just need to let off steam for the week, and so I would like to be able to, as a Christian, do all these things right here. So if you could put that back in that covenant, that would be great. God's like, no, this is the covenant I'm making with you. You going to obey it or not? And that's sort of what we see, what, if you understand maybe what a covenant is. Because the world, like I said, we don't deal with covenants like that. We like to make deals and sort of go back and forth and banter a little bit if we can. The world is opposed to God's will. God says this is the way it is. We're like, eh, a little too tight, God. You need to loosen up on this one. It's not the way it works. That's not the way for God's people. When God establishes a covenant, it's never to discourage us. It's to encourage us and help us live a righteous life. 
So these are the things that we've learned, okay? The others, these things about Noah. God's the main character. He's a God of grace. He's a God of promise. But here's the part of the story that I must have overlooked years and years of reading the Bible, of teaching or preaching on the story of Noah. In your Bibles, turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7. To me, it's so small, but it's so cool. Chapter 7, we're going to go with verse 1. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family. For among all the people on the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal that I have approved for eating and for sacrifice. Take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Notice that God has given him a timeline here. The flood's going to pass. Look at verse 4. Seven days. How many days? How many days? Seven. Seven days from now, I will make the rain pour down on earth. Wait a minute. Let's back it up. God said, go into the boat, right? Verse 1. I want you to go into that boat. I want you to get everything settled. Take everything I told you about, right? Seven days from now, I'm going to make it rain. God, what am I supposed to do in the next seven days? It's not going to take us seven days. The animals are coming in on their own. Um, we've been storing things. Everything is, the, the, boat, the boat's ready. So I guess maybe a day or two of storing certain things, making sure everybody's in their pens and stables and so forth. I don't know how long that's going to take. It's not going to take seven days. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth. It will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I've wiped from the earth all the living things I've created. Verse 5. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. God made the covenant. Noah agreed. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. Verse 7. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, and he and his wife and sons and their wives. Verse 8. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating, those for sacrifices, and those that were not, along with all the birds and the animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God commanded Noah. After how many days? Seven. Seven days, the water of the flood came and covered the earth. Now, again, this is part of the story that maybe I just brushed over. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. But to me, as I'm reading this, for some reason, it's like, no, this seems like a big deal. We read that the Lord commanded him to go into the ark, and then seven days later it rained. Again, what happened during those seven days? Did it take all seven days to move all the food in and get everything established or what? I mean, what, what, what was God waiting on? And it wasn't Noah and his sons that closed the door. It was God that closed the door, by the way. I mean, what did we learn from this? Let me, let me go with the first thing that we learned from this. And I was reading from another uh, theologian, and I fully agree with this. But here's my first thought is that, is that God is our security. God is our security. Now, what I mean by this is that when the Lord put Noah and his family on the ark and God closed the door as we read, who shut the door? God did. Did Noah shut the door? No. God shut the door. God secured the door. The floods came. The rains came. The ship was rocked, I'm sure. 
but they were safe. You know why they were safe? They were sealed in the ark by God. There was security there. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30 says this. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me. He is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand because the Father and I are one. Church, listen very carefully. I've seen it over and over again. I did it myself. I can't tell you, when I was growing up, I had a hard concept of understanding that God loved me, God forgave me, and I'm all good. I I believe God loved me. I believe God forgave me. And I would pray the sinner's prayer. God, forgive me, I have sinned. And and come into my life and take my sins away and come into my heart. and, And amen. I'm a Christian. And then two weeks later, I'd go to a church camp or a conference, and boy, I felt like a sinner. So I'd pray that prayer again. Must not have worked the first time. So I better pray it again. Can I tell you how many times I got saved? I've been saved so many times. If you look at the statistics, I'm, I'm probably 10% of those stats right there, okay? And I, some of you maybe did the same thing. Why is that? Because we, for some reason we doubt that God loves us, and that's good enough the first time for him to tell us that. Let me tell you the truth. God loves you, period. You might have to be reminded of that over and over, but you don't have to keep confessing to ask him to come back into your heart again. It isn't like God said, that's it, you stand I'm out of here, Leah, you right? We think that. I don't know why we think that. When we read scripture that says, Jesus says, no one can snatch them away from me. No one can take them out of my hand. My father and I are one, and he's bigger than me. No one can take them away from him either. You can't lose what I've given you. And so when Noah goes in the ark and God shuts the door and says, boom, you're, you're, you're secure. I got you. I, I look at the scripture, and it, it just, it just me, it's like it points me towards the future when Jesus Christ is going to die on that cross. And he's going to die for our sins. And our life is secure in him. There's another thing of, in this scripture that blows me away, and that's, I'm thinking this for years, Noah is building an ark. If you go in the timeline and try to understand the understanding of, of when his kids were born, when they began to help him, when the flood came, and again, you look through all the genealogies, there's a time span that could be anywhere from 45 to 75 years that Noah was building this ark. In that time span, that's a lot of years of building an ark. That, that, that's a lifetime for us, right? Of building a boat. And if I'm building an ark in the middle of nowhere, there's no water, and nobody's ever seen a boat, and nobody's ever seen a boat this size, there's a lot of questions going on. Maybe ridicule. And so as the question is going on, I've got a lot of opportunity to witness. This, this is because God told me to build it because God loves me and he wants to save me and he wants to save you too. If you just trust me and what I'm saying here, put your trust in God, come with me on this ark, you'll be saved. And a lot of people are like, No way. So for 45 to 75 years, that kind of conversation was probably going on. God says, you know what? I want you to understand what grace is all about, Noah. Get on the mark. I want you to just leave that door open. Wait seven days. God gave people more time. He gave more time for people to repent and to come on that ark. It wasn't like, all right, you guys on? Good, quick, shut the door. Don't let anybody else in. Again, if you watch Hollywood movies, you see people banging on those doors like, let us in, let us It's like, 
What was, where did that come from? Oh, that's their rendition of obviously how horrible it was for them. And it was horrible for them. But the door was open to all. See, God's grace is great, but it's, understand this too. It's not unending. See, at the end of the week, what happened? Boom, the door shut, right? After seven days, the door was closed. The week came to an end and the flood came. See, the same God who opens the door, he himself is the door. John chapter 10, 7 and 9 say this. You guys remember the book of John? I think I preached through that a couple of Sundays. Remember that? So in John 10, Jesus said, All who come to me before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, the door. All who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely, and they will find good pastors. Jesus basically says, I'm the door. And if you go to visit the ark uh, encounter, you will see at the huge door, there's a sign that talks about how Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through Jesus Christ. The door was sort of a foreshadowing of who Jesus was going to, or who he is and what he was going to do. The door is open, but eventually the door is going to be shut. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. But if you don't place your faith in him, the way is shut. The message that God is a creator and that he had this sin has consequences and judgment is coming is just, yeah, that's a part of the story here with Noah. And we see it. And God gave people time to repent. You know why? Because God is a God of grace. It's interesting that the Bible tells us there was only one door in the ark. As I said, what a foreshadowing of what Jesus would say when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Just as Noah believed God, entered the ark, found life, we must place our faith in Jesus Christ to have life. The story, the adventure of Noah, basically points us towards the New Testament, Jesus Christ, and how we can be saved. Now, that's what I've learned from the story of Noah. And there's so much in this. We could spend weeks on Noah and different things, but I want you to know again, the main character in this story is God. What do we know about God? God is the God of grace. God is the God of grace. In your Bibles, let's go to one more scripture. Second Peter chapter 3. It's towards the back of the New Testament. Peter, who is one of the apostles or one of the disciples of, of uh, Jesus Christ, as he wrote this letter... You can imagine that times were pretty crazy, right? And the people around him were probably living godless lives. We can probably sort of relate to all that, right? Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 5, it says this. They deliberately forgot that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, Genesis 1. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7. When he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. Okay, now everybody listen. Because what, what did Peter just say? Don't forget this. This is important. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. 
The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some people think. No, listen, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He left that door open seven days. He has left his spirit moving amongst the earth right now to still give us time to repent as well. It's a little insert in there, okay? But he wants everyone to repent. Did you hear that? God wants everyone to repent. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. So Peter's basically saying, you guys remember when Noah and the earth, remember Noah and the earth was destroyed by a worldwide flood? There's another one coming. God will bring judgment, and it's not going to be pretty. So how should we live? Should we all go out and start building arcs? Here's what he said. Since everything's going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should live. Instead of running around with our heads cut off like a chicken, you know what this, the old phrase goes? We're supposed to run around living holy, godly lives. Looking forward to that day of God and hurrying along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away into flames. But we are looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth, he promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. So, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, while that door is open, while you got these seven days, while we have, we don't know how much time we have, make every effort to be found living angry lives, yelling at people, getting upset about things that bother you, sharing your opinion until people, you're blue in the face. Oh, I'm sorry. I lost my train. While you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living what? Peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Remember, our Lord's patience gives time for people to be saved. Do you hear what Peter said? God is being patient. Why? So that people can be saved. Why is that? Because God is a God of grace. People are turning from God right now. I get it. People reject God as creator. I get it. I see it. They put themselves in his place wanting to be God. But God continues to be long-suffering and patient as in the days of Noah. But there's going to come a time when judgment will come. And during Noah's time, the question was, are you on the ark or are you not? And maybe our question right now is, are you saved or not? Have you placed your faith in Christ or not? As I said, today's grace comes in the shape of a cross. Where are you at, church? And you're like, hey, I got it. I've placed my faith. I'm good. Yes. So are you living a pure and blameless life? Are you living to make every effort to be peaceful? Are you sharing the good news with others? God is a God full of grace. He has he is gave us time to share truth with others. Not to have a countdown clock to say, he's going to come back anytime. They've been saying that. Can I tell you this? They've been saying that for hundreds of years. So if, if you're out there thinking, the Lord's going to come back next week because we got a pandemic, we got hostile relationships with people, this world is, Jesus is coming back. Yes, he is coming back. We don't know when. They've been seeing that for 1989. I remember going to college and uh, an author wrote a book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 89. That book didn't sell, right? It's no longer 1989. We're still here. Jesus even told his people, he said, one day, he goes, nobody knows the day or the hour when things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Do you hear what Jesus just said? 
I don't even know when it's going to happen. My angels don't. You know who knows when it's going to happen? God knows. Nobody else knows. So if you're out there or somebody's out there saying, we know, you're a liar, and so are they. Don't listen to them. We don't know. What we do know, he is coming back. We just don't know when. We don't know when he's going to shut that door. So the question is, are you on board and you got other people on board with you? That's what matters. Worship team, would you come forward, please? I'm sure as you read through the story, there's other things and adventures you'll think about Noah. But can I share one more thing with you, church? Noah, as he's building, that had to be a long process, being possibly ridiculed. As he's being obedient to God, doing all these things, he's thinking, what's the payoff maybe? I don't know. Or maybe when he gets on that boat and it starts to rain, and he's thinking, what did I get myself into? And on 39 days, it's still raining. 40 days, it's raining and it stops. And he's like, ooh. And he, he looks out that 18-inch window and he's like, I see nothing but water. And for the next 10 months, he saw nothing but water. And he's in a dark boat. There's no windows. There's no lights, right? It's a little dark. Do you think he got depressed? Do you think he felt a little bit quarantined? Oh, yeah, we're like, i got to be quarantined for two weeks. Oh, we got to stay home for a month. How about a year in a boat with smelly animals? No electricity, no internet, no Fortnite, no Twinkies. I mean, we're talking. This is painful, right? That was rough for Noah. But he, what? He trusted God. So sometimes I know we think we got it rough. I get that, okay? But I'm thinking, man, Noah, was he's just hanging on after a year, finally, Sends out a raven, nothing. Sends out a dove, nothing. Sends out another dove, olive branch. You know what the olive branch reminds us of, doesn't it? Peace. Peace. God showed him a rainbow. God showed him an olive branch. See, God will remind all of us that he keeps his promises. God will remind us that he is still on the throne. God will remind us that he is God, full of grace. Would you stand, please? God will remember. God will always remember. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that as we read through this adventure, we get to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, you remembered Noah, and you started to send a wind that would cause the waters to recede. It isn't like you forgot. It's just a little, little note there to sit there and say, God never forgets. He remembers us right where we're at. So maybe we feel like we're in a dark time. Maybe we feel like God's forgotten us. Maybe we feel like this world is just crazy, out of control. But you've not forgotten us. You remember us. You're a faithful God, full of grace. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, that we can celebrate who you are, that you're so good to us. In the, in the morning, we're going to say you're good. In the evening, we're going to say you're good because you are good. We love you, Lord. In the name of